Well, have you been uh, coughing and doing all that kind of stuff because of all of the wildfire stuff from Canada? I uh, was smelling it last night. I had to cut my grass, and, and then it kind of messed me up, you know, a little bit today. Not too bad, but just, just enough to let you know there's something going on. And I remember back uh, in the 80s, I heard uh, Vance Havner preaching at the Southern Baptist Convention in Los Angeles, and they had a killer smog that came in. And people were getting sick and passing out and ambulances coming to pick up people on the sidewalks, things like that. And uh, I remember back in those days, we lived in San Francisco, and there was just this brown cloud hanging over the the whole city. And L.A. was about the same way, Uh, pretty rough. And uh, as he was talking, he said that there was a weatherman that came on and said this killer smog is right there in that valley. Los Angeles is in a, in a valley, and it was just, just held right there. And then he said, the only thing that is going to take care of this is a wind from elsewhere. And then he preached, opened his Bible and preached and said, what our convention needs to clear out all of the junk is a wind from elsewhere. And he preached out of Acts 2 about the mighty rushing wind that came in. And that really is the answer to everything. You've got a problem in your life you can't overcome. That's why God gave you the Holy Spirit. Have things in life you can't handle and can't understand. That's why He gave you His Holy Spirit. And uh, we need sometimes to clear out the clutter. We definitely need, as He said, a wind from elsewhere. And as I was thinking about that, I was going to ask you, you had any bad days in your life lately? Had any rough times? Um, I want you to turn to Psalm 4 tonight. I think we're on uh, verse 6, if I remember right. And uh, we're going to look at this tonight, and we're going to remember some of the things that David is going through. Ever had a rough day? Well, how about this? You ever had one of your sons uh, forcibly rape your daughter? Nobody? Well, David did. Have you ever had one of your children run you out of the house and you have to literally run for your life because they want to kill you? Anybody have that? Well, well, David did. And uh, have you ever had a time where it seemed like everybody forsook you? Remember David, uh, when he was first crowned, he ruled in Hebron over uh, two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, and then the other ten tribes... They came and they joined, and then they moved the capital to Jerusalem. But during this time when Absalom is trying to kill David and uh, take over the throne, all of the tribes, the Bible says, have forsaken David, even his own tribe of Judah. You ever had everybody forsake you? I mean, we have times when certain people do, and in certain situations we feel alone, but I don't know that I've ever quite had it as bad as David did. And uh, so when we think about this particular psalm, we get to verse 6, and it says, There are many who say, Who will show us any good? Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. Kind of a quote from that blessing of Aaron in the book of Numbers, Make your face to shine upon us. And so uh, out of that, I've entitled this uh, message tonight, The uh, question 
that you can't help but ask. I think every time I've been involved in a tragedy, whether it was a tragic death, we've experienced some of those over the years we've been here, tornadoes, devastating tornadoes. I can remember uh, when I was a kid, I say kid, teenager, when we lived in Owasso, uh, I don't remember ever going to a shelter at all. And I remember going out and, you know, looking and watching, hoping I would see something. And if there was a funnel, you just went outside and looked at it and, you know, those kind of things. I remember when we lived in Virginia, there was a hurricane that came through. And uh, before the thing had come all the way through, my dad and I were walking out on the beach. Man, I've never seen waves so big. I mean, you know, those kind of things that, that come along, tragedies sometimes. But for most of us, they're just things that come and things that go. I'm sure people that went through uh, Katrina in New Orleans probably felt a little bit different than I did about the hurricane that we had in Virginia because it wasn't near as big or devastating. Um, I think about how we just kind of take life in stride and some of the things that we talk about, we uh, wonder and we ask the question, why? Why would a loving God allow this? Why would uh, God not stop this? We've all had those situations in life. And we don't mean, I don't think, to ask that question. I think it just comes up. And people want to know, where was God on 9-11? Where was God on April 19, 1995? Where was God when the big tornadoes came? I mean, if God's in control, why did he allow that to happen? Why didn't he stop it? Things like that. Well, think about David running for his life. Think about David. Now his own son wants him dead and is plotting to kill him and to take over the kingdom. His own son has uh, violated David's own concubines. Kind of an incestuous thing, but also a very rebellious thing to show I'm the dominant male here, not, not my dad. Uh, all of those kind of things. Do thy friends despise, forsake thee? Take it to the Lord in prayer, we sing. Well, David has done that, and he has spoken to the Lord at first, and then he spoke to the culture that he lived in. And now he's quoting some people. He says there are many that are asking the question. Uh, sometimes whenever you lead anything, I don't care what you lead, you'll have some people that are not happy, and somebody will come to you, and they said, well, there's a lot of people upset about this. You know what I uh, learned instead of panicking? Ask them for names. And most of the time they don't want to give you names. They don't want to name anybody because there's probably not as many as they would like for you to think. They kind of inflate themselves and they want to intimidate you with a lot of people are upset. A lot of people, many people are doing that kind of thing. And you're supposed to, you know, bow down to them and do what they want you to do. I don't think David is doing that because he's talking uh, here and uh, he, I think what he is expressing here is there's a question on a lot of people's minds. Now can you imagine David's got some people that have been with him since he was running from Saul in uh, the desert in, in Gedi and uh, they're wondering why, why is this happening? David, well, okay, let's stop for a moment. I think we know why it's happening. Do you remember what David did with Bathsheba? Do you remember how he had Uriah the Hittite murdered and widowed Bathsheba? 
and uh, all of that. And you remember how he hid it, covered it up for about a year. And um, then Nathan the prophet came and confronted him and he finally admitted to it. And um, you remember how Nathan said, well, your sin's forgiven, you're not going to die. But the sword will never depart from your house. Okay, how, how is it? Have you ever had a sin that caused some consequences that were terrible and you were guilt-ridden because you knew your sin had caused that? Think about how David must be feeling. And people all around him are going, I can't believe this. What's going on? And who does <coughs> Absalom think he is? And uh, boy, if I ever get my hands on him, I'll wring his neck or, you know, whatever. And uh, can you imagine, and David going, well, I think I know. You know, Jonah was like that. When he ran from God and he's on the boat and he's going to Tarshish and uh, that storm comes up and uh, Jonah's asleep in the storm and the sailors come to him and they go, wake up, dreamer. Wake up and pray if you, to your God if you think your God cares for us. And, uh, you know, Jonah knew. Jonah knew. This was his fault. In fact, he admitted it. If you'll just take me and throw me overboard, this whole thing will stop. And uh, you know the rest of the story. Uh, what's it like when you are going through something that you know is a consequence of your own sin? Something that you have done and you, you, can, put, you can put the pieces together. Two plus two equals, it's not five, it's not seven, it's not nine, it's not zero, it's, it's four, it's always four. And you put all of those things together. Don't you know David is in agony over all of this? And don't you know he's second-guessing things? Why did I go up on the roof that night? Why did I linger when I was looking at Bathsheba? Oh, why did I? I knew better than to send the messengers to go get her. And at any point, you know, the Bible says God provides a way of escape that we can endure the temptation. So at any point, David could have said, no, we're not going to do this. No, I'm not going to do this. But he didn't. And because of that, a baby has died. Uriah has died. And, uh, you know, all of that kind of stuff is going on. And now this. Uh, th this is just a horrible, horrible thing. And so he says, again, let's look at it again. There are many who say, who will show us any good? Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. Well, I reckon. I, I, I guarantee you David is thinking, you know, when have, I, when have I gone through enough? Have you ever asked that question? How much longer do I have to go through this? I know this is my fault. I know that I caused this. But how much do I have to endure? And how much longer do I have to uh, go on? So I look at all of that and I go, oh, I don't have any problems. Not compared to King David. And David desperately wants the Lord to bless him again. Well, I certainly understand that. Lord, please, enough. Please, let up. Please, make your face to shine on us. Let us see a smiling face instead of a frowning providence, the Puritans might say. So, uh, we'll uh, tear this apart by this. Number one, who are the many? And I read uh, different things, that uh, ideas that people had uh, about who the, the many are. Are they, you know, good people, bad people? Are they the enemies? Are they, you know, what kind of people are they? I think I've landed on the fact that these are the people that stuck with David. The people that stuck with David are suffering too. And that must have torn David's heart apart too because people were 
uh, potentially dying in battle defending their king. There were people that were risking their life because of their king and because they didn't agree with the rebellion of uh, Absalom. And uh, they're asking the question, how, how does this go? Where's God and where's the good that comes out of this? Now think about it. If you follow David during all of this and you lose and David is killed, what's going to happen to you? You know Absalom is not going to let you live. The, these are men who are marked. They are really the few, the proud, the brave. Uh, they're like the heroes that went out on D-Day into German gunfire. Uh, th that's who these people kind of are. And so uh, they're asking the question. And they've known David as being a godly man, a, a very, very religious man, a man after God's own heart. So why is this happening to him? This seems out of order. Maybe they knew. Maybe they knew about Bathsheba. Maybe they knew the whole situation. I don't know. But uh, that's the question. Who are the many here? There are many who say this. And uh, I think they're David's supporters. And I think if you uh, consider the situation, I mean, they're in a rough time. And there are some people that are loyal to David, of course. And think about what's happening. There's a revolution taking place. I mean, a, a real bona fide revolution, not just the threat of it. Sometimes you hear people say, I get a little uh, weary of people in Congress say that something somebody did or something somebody didn't do, it's a threat to our democracy. Well, somehow I kind of think and hope we're a little stronger than that. And uh, I've heard that all of my life. This could be the end. And yet we seem to survive some of those things. Now that may not happen all the time. I don't mean to say don't take it seriously. But I think sometimes we kind of jump the gun on all of that. Well David and his supporters are living through a real revolution. Absalom is taking over. He's declared himself to be king. And uh, taken the palace. Moved into Jerusalem even. And uh, the government has literally collapsed. Who's the decision maker? Who's in charge here? Who's doing this? And they're looking to David, but the rest of the country is looking to uh, Absalom and his advisors and his people. David's not on the throne. The anointed one's not on the throne. And Absalom seems to be winning. I mean, by all uh, accounts, when you look at the story, how do you determine who wins a war? Well, they take over territory, they disarm the, uh, 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 the opposition, and um, that's what Absalom is actually doing. And so uh, they don't have any certainty about anything. So if you're in that situation, what if our nation collapsed? What if our leaders are gone? What if there are other people that are taking over? Maybe they're foreigners I don't know. I, I hope it's not Hunter Biden that uh, takes over. But, uh, you know, you, you think about those kind of things that happen. And how would you feel? How would you feel if, if your money was absolutely worthless? You couldn't get the things that you need. How would you feel if there were foreign troops walking in front of your house? How would you feel if uh, you spoke up in um, uh, support of your country or saluting your flag that that might get you a, a bullet or a prisonment or something like that how would you feel and and this is kind of what's happening in all of Israel some people like it some people don't but some 
like these are asking, what's going on here and where's the good that's going to come out of this? Will there be any good that comes out of this? I've had a few situations in my life where I've gone to the Lord and said, you promised all things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to your purpose. But Lord, I don't see it. I can't find it. It doesn't make any sense to me. I don't see anything good in this. Have you ever felt like that? Maybe questioned God that way? And that's a little what's going on. What's happening here? Where's the good and what's going to happen to us? Because uh, really at this point, they probably are thinking nothing but death. Nothing but death. I'm going to sacrifice my life for my king. Now give them credit. They were very loyal. And uh, that's uh, always a good thing. The second thing, the uh, questions that arise along with this. Uh, who will show us any good? Okay, where's the good that's going to come out of this? Are we going to see better days? You know, a lot of our politicians like to tell us this isn't the end. Our best days are not behind us. Brighter days are ahead, right? Uh, I remember... Um, one uh, president that when he was uh, nominated by his party to read the band struck up, happy days are here again. Uh, not quite, but uh, that's what we always think. And we always want to think that there's something better, that this is going to be better. Tomorrow's going to be better. We get to December 31st and we're always happy when it's January 1. Except our problems kind of creep over and sneak into the new year as well, especially if they're the consequences of sin. And so um, that they're asking a legitimate question, who will show us any good? Now, you and I are quick to answer, uh, well, the Lord will. Well, the Lord will. And, you know, sometimes you ought to be really careful about that because sometimes you can say that in, uh, to somebody and they're going through a situation where they're not really ready to receive that. That doesn't make them happy. It seems like the Lord is against them and life is against them. And just a kind of a glib answer like, well, just have faith. Just trust God. Well, the Lord will be faithful and do all of that. That is true. And I'm not saying don't ever say that. I'm just saying be careful when you say that because sometimes uh, that's kind of hurtful to people. And they don't understand what all is going on. Well, these people are asking, who will show us any good? In other words... Where is God when tragedy strikes? Why do evil people prosper? Boy, that's all through the Bible and through the Psalms. Why do the heathen prosper? This doesn't make any sense. I've gone to church. I've trusted Christ. I give my money. I give my time. I read the Bible. I do all of those kind of things. Why am I hurting and why does this bozo over here seem to be doing so well? Well, you don't really know about his mental state, do you? And you don't really know what his family life is like. You don't really know any of those things. Uh, it's easy to assume they've got it easier and uh, nobody is hurting. And they, they're just, you know, sunshine, lollipops and roses. And I'm the one suffering. That probably isn't true. Because the Bible talks about the suffering we experience is being uh, experienced by other people in the world too. But it sure seems unfair sometimes. Sure seems unfair when... Uh, the economy goes down and you watch your retirement account shrink and then here's somebody over here who doesn't love God and, and they strike it rich or win the lottery or something like that. Some things just don't always seem fair. And you know these people are saying, as they look at David, where are the promises of God? Where are the promises of God? Didn't God make a covenant with you? And uh, what's going to happen to the 
faithful people here. What's going to happen? Are they going to live? Are they going to die? Are they going to suffer anymore? And uh, that covenant thing, boy, that's, that's just kind of tough to really understand here. God made a covenant with David. It's, it's actually in 2 Samuel, uh, but it's summarized in uh, 1 Chronicles 17, 11 through 14, and 2 Chronicles 6, 16, if you ever wanted to read it. And it has messianic implications and all of that kind of thing. God said, somebody will sit on your throne forever. Well, now it doesn't even look like David's going to be on his throne. This, this is not computing. This is not working. This is not understandable. This is not something that we can you know, grasp and hold on to and say, praise God, everything's going to be great. This is the kind of thing where it seems like God is doing exactly opposite of what he has promised. Maybe you've had some times like that where you've said, God, what are you doing? I, I just don't understand any of this. And this is what these people are living through. Thirdly, um, the very next word in our verse says, Lord, and then it makes a request. Well, I stop there with the one word, Lord, because I think the only way we're going to make it through hard, difficult times, even the times we're in right now, times your family may be in, much less the times David are in, is we've got to quit looking to people, and we've got to quit looking to circumstances, and we have to look to the Lord. Easier said than done sometimes. I'll, I'll grant you that. And sometimes when you feel like the Lord is going against you, it's really a little difficult to pray, difficult to trust. And uh, yet, I think almost all of us have been through enough things that in those bewildering, dark, lonely times that we can't figure out, if you'll give enough time and wait before you jump to a conclusion about your Heavenly Father, you'll find out He knew what He was doing all along you'll find out that he does all things well and you'll find out that it really did work together we just don't have enough time we don't have enough intellect we don't have enough experience sometimes to really see it all the way through and I think sometimes it's like we're running in a fog and we are running a marathon and boy it's foggy and it's hard and we don't know if we're ever going to make it to the end. And we finally go, I just can't go another step further. And then the fog lifts and the finish line was two feet in front of us. If we had just kept going, if we had just taken a couple of more steps, we would have actually finished. And I think a lot of us drop out, we quit, we assess the situation, we say, yeah, there's no end to this. And uh, we get ourselves in a lot of trouble from that sometimes and I'm, I'm not just talking to you I'm I'm talking to me in that situation because uh, we don't have enough of God's perspective to see all of that and so uh, that comes up and we forget who we're looking to uh, think about this these people are looking and saying you know what good is going to come out of this and uh, part of that is because they're looking at David I mean, they admire David, they love David, they're loyal to David, they protected David, they've been with David when he was running from King Saul, they've been with David through some of the rough and rocky times of life, and they're not about to abandon him now. You always appreciate friends, especially friends who will stick with you through the rough times. Those friends that say, I don't really care why this is happening, I care about you, and I'm going to walk with you through all of this. Boy, that's a wonderful thing. That friend that sticks closer than a brother, 
that is written about in Proverbs. Well, David had a taste of that. But you know these people are thinking, you know, David's always had the answers. David's always been able to figure things out. David is a, a, a master when it comes to strategy and all of those kind of things. And uh, by the way, when we think about David, well, David's the junior high kid that killed a giant. All the armies of Israel were petrified, scared to death, and they didn't want to make a move. And then here comes this little squirt with sandwiches for his brothers. And uh, when he hears what Goliath says, he goes before him with, of all things, a slingshot. And what happens? The Lord was with him, and the rock hit Goliath in a vulnerable spot. He falls, and David prevails. So when you're looking at David now, he doesn't look very victorious. He doesn't look like the giant killer. Don't you know when David prevailed over Goliath being the young kid that he was? Man, he was grinning from ear to ear. He was excited. Adrenaline is flowing. He has killed the giant like no one else could. And that's why his older brother Eliab was so upset with him on that. David is, you know, the giant killer. And can you imagine what it was like when David and Saul are coming back from battle and the women with their tambourines start saying, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. I mean, don't you know David had probably had a little bit of trouble keeping his ego in check with all of that? I would, wouldn't you? And uh, everybody's praising him. And uh, so it must have been a strange turn of events when Saul, who has is the king who is also David's father-in-law just all of a sudden throws a spear at him when David has to run for his life and for a decade live in caves there must have been some of these same questions but they thought it was all over have you ever done that <coughs> have you ever had a time where you said oh I'm glad that's over but then you found out all you're getting now is round two it happens sometimes doesn't it <coughs> pardon me so now these men that had been with David in the caves, they thought they had served their time. They thought everything was better. And now what are they doing? Living in caves again, living in tents, running for their lives. And there's the giant killer, and he doesn't seem to have any answer this time. He doesn't have a slingshot. He doesn't have a strategy. He doesn't have anything. He's running just like they are. My goodness, this is something that must be extremely difficult for them uh, David had endured the um, attempts on his life by Saul and David had united the 12 tribes of Israel and uh, now David seems to be powerless now David seems I mean somebody says David what are we going to do can you imagine David now he's a little older he's shot he's emotionally drained after everything he's been through his daughter has been raped, a son has been killed, and another son is trying to kill him and take over the palace. Can you imagine how old he feels, how dry he must feel? Can you imagine when people come to him and say, hey, chief, what are we going to do? And David, for the first time in his life, says, I don't know. I don't know. This, this may be it. Can you imagine David coming to the point where maybe his faith is not quite as strong as it was when he killed the giant? Maybe at the point where he's thinking, I wonder if God's finished with me because of what I've done. I wonder if I'm being set on the shelf. 
I wonder if this is it. Oh, can you imagine what his men must be feeling when they see that their king, David, is like that? Well, if David doesn't, I mean, I've had people say this to me, and, uh, you know, I'm certainly no David. Well, if you don't know what to do, I certainly don't know what to do. That's, that's a tough place to be, especially if you're a leader. David can't encourage them. David can't answer anything. He doesn't really know. And uh, they just have to live one day at a time. You know, there are some times in life when you say, I don't know what to do. I talked to somebody just the other day, and they said, I don't know how I'm gonna, what I'm going to do and how I'm going to handle this. And I said, I do. And they said, what? And I said, you're going to get up in the morning, you're going to take a shower, you're going to get dressed, clean up, and then you're going to put one foot in front of another and make it through another day. And at the end of the day, if you'll take one step in God's will and another step in God's will and just do what you're supposed to do, you'll be okay. And you just have to make it one step at a time, one day at a time. Anybody ever had that kind of experience? Lord, I don't know what to do, but the psalmist said, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Well, as you know, the kind of lamps, those clay lamps they would hold with the oil in it and the wick that was floating with the, that would be lit, I didn't put out a whole lot of light. It gives you light for one more step, though. And that's what the Lord does. He doesn't always show you what tomorrow is going to bring or what 10 years from now is going to bring or what the future holds. He says, all you need to know is follow me and I'll give you enough light for one more step. And so we keep on. When that's where David is now. Now that's not always something that is heartening. This is not a remember the Alamo or something like that or remember Pearl Harbor. There's nothing like that going on here. There's no rah-rah, three cheers for David or anything like that at all. David doesn't know what to do. But he knows that he can look to the Lord and he can trust the Lord and the Lord will show him in uh, good time. And so um, David, this uniter, this king, this conqueror, this giant killer seems to have no answers. He's on the run and he is absolutely humiliated. Have you ever had something happen in your family that the worst part of it was not what the person did, but it was, oh, everybody's going to hear about this. What will so-and-so say? What's going to happen when so-and-so finds out? What, what, how am I going to answer them? You ever been in that spot? It's tough. You don't really know the answers, and all you feel is shame and humiliation. And David can rule a kingdom, but he's not a very good father. His family is in shambles and a lot of grief, a lot of death, a lot of sin, a lot of consequences. All of this kind of stuff is happening. Now, what's going on in the midst of all of this? The tribes of Israel were with Absalom and the tribes of uh, Judah and Benjamin, his own people, his own family members are with Absalom. And uh, the only people that are with David now are the Cherethites and the uh, Pelethites and the mighty men that have been with him since he was in the caves running from Saul, loyal friends. And um, David had a, a friend and a trusted advisor, Ahithophel. And Ahithophel was considered a very wise 
counselor by David. This is the kind of guy that David would say, uh, what are we going to do? Ahithophel, you got anything? And Ahithophel would say, well, here's what I think you ought to do. And he was the kind of guy that you, you just didn't ask anybody else. He just did what he said. He was just always right. He always had his finger on the pulse of the situation. He always knew David's skills, David's desires, uh, David's capabilities, and what he advised always seemed to fit. Trusted, smart advisor. They would call him a sage. Okay? Well, Ahithophel is with Absalom. Ahithophel now is advising the rebel. Ahithophel is now planning Absalom's strategy, Absalom's battle. You know what Ahithophel told Absalom to do? You really want to make a statement? And when we think about uh, Absalom, when he uh, had sexual relations with his father's concubines, which would be considered incest, you know who told Absalom to do that? Ahithophel. Ahithophel is the guy, and he's the power behind all of this. You know, they say that when you are looking at a leader, and he's kind of the head of something, don't really look at him. Look at the neck. Who's turning the head? Who's turning the head? Well, Ahithophel was the neck. Ahithophel was turning the head, and Absalom is acting upon his advice. And so this is the guy that left David followed um, Absalom and told Absalom all of these wicked, horrible things to do. Now, consider this. Ahithophel knew David very well because he had been his advisor. And so when he's giving Absalom advice, you know what he's doing? This is what will really hurt. This is what will really get him, if that's what you want to do, Absalom. And so you can imagine Absalom saying, Ahithophel... What can I do that are really, really getting? And Ahithophel would tell him because he knew and he understood. So it's hurting David even worse knowing uh, that this trusted advisor is now a traitor to him. Now, he also uh, advises Absalom. Absalom says, what should we do now? And Ahithophel says, I know David. Get him now. This is your chance to kill him. Go while he is tired. Go while he is exhausted. Go, by, go while he is uh, bewildered. And it, this is the time to strike. He's over by the fords. We know where he is. And uh, this is the time to get him. Get him and get him now. That was the advice. And normally, uh, Absalom would have done that. But there's another wrinkle to the story. David had a couple of priests that were loyal to him, and they tried to follow him, and David says, no, go back to Jerusalem. Go to your work in the temple. Don't neglect the Lord's work, and at the same time, give me any information that you can come up with. And then there was another guy named Hushai, H-U-S-H-A-I, and uh, David said, when he wanted to stay with David, David said, no, be a spy, be a spy. You go back to the palace and you hang around and endear yourself to Absalom and then give word to these two priests who will get word to me and that way we'll have military intelligence uh, so we know exactly what to do, what they're planning and what we're supposed to do. And so Hushai goes 
And uh, he is able to endear himself to Absalom. Well, Absalom is told by uh, Hishapheth, go ahead and attack, do it now. This is the time. Strike while the iron's hot. Get him. And uh, Hushai goes, yeah, uh, not so fast. Not so fast. And Absalom goes, what do you mean? He goes, you know your dad is an expert in war. Well, everybody knows that. And you know that the men that are with him, they may not be many, but they are valiant men. And they have a lot of skills. And Absalom, you can picture him kind of going, yeah, what's your point? Well, Absalom, you need more men. You need to build up your army and you need to make sure it is better trained. And uh, so what do you think we ought to do? Don't attack now. You're not ready. You don't have enough people. And you're going to run into a buzzsaw. Wait. Build up your army and then attack later. Well, somehow, Hushai, this is probably why David sent him there, was very persuasive. Because who did Absalom follow? Hushai. And he says, uh, okay, yeah, we're not going to attack. Cancel the orders. We're going to train, we're going to build up, we're going to recruit some more people, and we're really going to get ready whenever this happens. Ahishaphel messed him up so bad, he went to his house and killed himself. Probably some different reasons for that, but we won't take the time to go into that. And it wouldn't matter anyway, just speculation. So this is what all is going on. This is what all is happening. And Absalom is falling into the trap. Because now, instead of David having to get ready to defend himself and defend his army from Absalom's force coming through, David now can get out of Dodge. He can go to a better place, a safer place, and they can regroup and they can rest and they can gain some strength and they can be ready for the next battle. And the next battle is going to be a very, very decisive and important battle for King David. So uh, this... uh, Uh, This Hushai was able to get Absalom to fall right into his track. Okay? Now, when you uh, think about these questions that are asked, what good is going to come out of this? Where's the Lord and what's happening? All people could see is like us, what was around him. They could see the stock market. Well, you know, they didn't have a stock market, but they could see the stock market. And they could see what China was doing, and they could see what was going on with Russia and Ukraine. And uh, they could see the drag queens and they could see all of the different things that are going on. And they're going, man, we don't like this. Where's God in all of this? Why didn't God do something? Why didn't God intervene? Why isn't there a revival? Why isn't there a spiritual awakening? Why aren't churches on fire for God? Where are the prayer warriors? Where are the people that are going to stand up on all of this? Where are the Billy Grahams and the people like that? Where are the reformers? Where are the great evangelists? Where, what's going on? Uh, why isn't God doing anything? Because if I were God, I would do something. I don't understand why God's not doing anything. So, you know, kind of an interesting thing. But there was something going on that they didn't see. The Lord was at work behind the scenes. So when David puts his friend Hushai in there, God was doing something. And Hushai told Absalom, don't attack. And he told him when to attack and that kind of thing. And his, his vice is accepted. Well, that was lucky, wasn't it? You know, what a lucky thing that Hushai was able to pull that off. No, there was something going on behind the scenes. 
And the Bible says, For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good advice of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring ruin on Absalom. 2 Samuel 17, 14. You know what was happening, what they found out, and what the writer here tells us? God wasn't asleep. God wasn't looking the other direction. God wasn't distracted by something else. God wasn't trying something to see how well it would work. And oh, shoot, it didn't work out so well this time. Wasn't like that at all. God knew exactly what he was doing. And he had his hand on the wheel and he was steering everything the way that it was supposed to go. And it was heading toward the defeat of Absalom and the reestablishment of the Davidic kingdom and the Davidic covenant that would result in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to pay for our sins a few hundred years later. And this led to the battle of Ephraim Woods where Absalom was defeated and where uh, he was actually killed and uh, David's throne is restored. God was working in ways David's followers just could not see. So does that answer your question? Where's the good that's coming out? Just wait. God will take care of it. God will reward you. God will restore. God will do what he's planned to do. Nothing is catching him off guard. Nothing is throwing him off of his game. Nothing is causing him to cross into another lane or anything like that. He's staying steady as she goes. He knows exactly what he is doing. So put your head on the pillow tonight and know that everything that's going on and all the noise that is around you, God may have an assignment for you in there somewhere, but... Even if he doesn't, don't sweat it. God's got it in control. Turn to him, trust him, look to him, pray to him, obey him, live for him, glorify him in everything that you do. And in the times that we live, you're going to see some things. And you're going to see uh, different companies cave to some of the woke agenda. And you go, I never thought that would happen. Uh, you're going to see some people cave and you're going to, well, I thought they were strong and I not thought they knew what was good or bad, right or wrong. I can't believe that they caved. Well, uh, Kevin DeYoung is a pastor and he gave us some uh, very helpful things to uh, let us know what is going on. Because what we need in the midst of upheaval is the Lord's blessing. Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us and if there's ever a time we needed to be blessed joyful people it's right now isn't it people are confused people are, are hurting people are killing themselves people are losing their families people are bewildered about everything the old ways aren't working anymore what's going on and they don't need to see a bunch of depressed christians walking around like they lost their last friend and god fell off of the throne they need to see us rejoicing in the Lord, having faith in God, trusting God, believing in the promises of God. And so uh, Dr. DeYoung talks about steps to complicity. What is it that corporations, denominations, churches, and uh, even uh, other people do in order to fall down this uh, downgrade here, as Spurgeon would have said it? And he uh, names these things. Uh, the words are on the screen, but I'll read a thing that explains them, and then we'll be done. First, there is silence. The evangelical leader or publication or institution that used to be clear on matters of sexuality and marriage, well, they just don't talk about those issues anymore. No matter what controversy erupts or what new cultural pressure uh, 
cries out for clarification. Nothing is said. It's as if the sexual revolution ceased to exist. So we don't talk about divorce. We don't talk about immorality. We don't talk about perversion. We don't talk about... We just, we just go radio silence on all of those kind of things. Have you noticed that there seems to be kind of a, an absence among certain groups and people that used to stand strong and now all of a sudden you don't hear anything? That's step one. Next comes, here's a word he made up, complexification. Say that three times real fast and keep your teeth in when you do it. Complexification. What does that mean? They make everything complex. You know what happens next? When they get questioned about it, maybe somebody from the denomination, well, we are studying that. We're going to have to look into that with uh, a lot of different people. We've got a committee here together that will look at it in Hebrew and Greek and Latin and we'll study all of the traditions and the confessions of faith and they make a big deal out of it when the Bible is really, really clear on it. And so uh, they go through that thing. Make it like it's some big complex thing that nobody's ever had to look at before. And now we have to look at this in order to understand it. And uh, yeah, we'll move on from that. Um, when we think about all of these things that just are so hopelessly complicated, we could never untie them. We must study them. And uh, then, then you start seeing uh, another thing that happened. Then there is usually an explicit pivot. All of a sudden they turn. You never thought they would turn. All of a sudden they turn. And uh, they give in. And sometimes we have politicians. They campaign so strong on things. Then they get elected and all of a sudden they govern like they're somebody else. Like they never said any of those things. And they turn and we wonder what in the world is going on. Well that's the next thing that happens. With people, denominations, corporations, institutions. An explicit pivot uh, to other issues. Sex and marriage are set aside as minor ethical conundrums are minimized as a distraction from the more urgent concerns that we have out here. We don't have time for these things. We've got big fish to fry. Things we must do. You ever heard anything like that? It's in the media all the time, every day. The bigger concerns may be racial justice. Well, that's important, of course. And poverty for those who are on the left of center. Or it may be missions and evangelism for the more conservative but the main thing is they leave the controversial stuff. Just, just leave it alone. Don't talk about that. Don't, don't, don't call anybody's attention to that. We don't want to answer those questions or deal with any of those kind of things. And so uh, we move to ignore the swirling sexual vortex, vortex that's threatening to destroy everything in its path. In the next stage, we see more frustration. Boy, this is where we live now. More frustration with those pointing out the sin than with those committing the sin. See, all of a sudden now we point out sin and we say this is wrong and all of a sudden we're the problems because we pointed all of that out. They'll tolerate them, but they won't tolerate in this tolerant age. They won't tolerate you or your stand on truth. That's the next stage that is uh, going on. That's a telltale thing that tells us we are moving down the scale and that we are in a lot of trouble. 
And so uh, we've got to have patience for everybody else, but no patience for you. The next thing is, this is a little tricky, there's a cannon within a cannon. Now that's not the boom, boom gun cannon. It's talking about the cannon of Scripture. And all of a sudden, the whole Bible's no good. I only look at the red letters. I only look at what Jesus said. I only look at what it says in a certain place. They don't consider the whole thing. Boy, people do that all the time. Jesus never would do that. How do you know? You don't even read the Bible. You don't even know him. And yet people are authorities on Jesus and what he would do and what he would say and how he would live all the time. And uh, yet they do that in violation of his word. And of course, Christ would never violate his word. And then in time, the uh, arguments become intensely personal and privatized. You know what that means? Well, if I believe what you did, then I would have to have trouble with my own son or my own daughter, and everything becomes personal. It's not a matter of right or wrong, good or bad, what's biblical or not biblical. Now it becomes what I feel, what I think, and how I have to act toward uh, people that I know. And so it has to become personal and privatized. And then I become my own God. And my uh, feelings become my Bible. And all of that kind of thing. And that ends up in a lot of things. Because there's a way that seems right to a man. But the end thereof are the ways of death. And then there comes this enlightenment. Well, I used to believe like you do. But I'm free from that. I'm free from being an evangelical. I'm free from being a Baptist. I'm free from being a Christian. And I'm going my own way now. And they celebrate their enlightenment, quote unquote. And all they're doing is heading over a cliff just like Absalom was. So you look at those things and you go, yeah, we're in some hard times and we're moving down that path. This is a time for us to be praying. This is a time for us to be joyful. This is a time to trust God. And this is a time that when you have the opportunity that uh, you probably ought to tell somebody about Jesus and speak up about some things. Train your children. Train your grandchildren because these are serious, serious, serious issues that we have. And uh, yet, at the same time, is the Lord at work? Hmm? Yeah, he is. You can't see him, but he is. So let's pray together, okay? <coughs> Lord, we live in such confusing times, and we know you're not the author of confusion. And we know, Lord, that um, any time your word is applied, and any time uh, people live in the way you've told us to live, that uh, things tend to go well. But we're never content with that. Like Eve, we always want what we can't have or don't have. And so we look at our society that is constantly chasing after so many things and things that don't bring happiness, things that don't bring joy, things that bring depression, things that lead to addictions, things that lead to uh, just horrible, horrible mental illness and sometimes even suicide. And it looks like we as humans would learn this is not bringing any happiness. And uh, yet, Lord, we know that uh, as, as a society, we can't really understand anything without you. So we're asking you to forgive us. And you're asking you to cleanse us. And we're asking you to make us to be the most joyful, kind, happy people that have ever walked on the earth. Because our faith is not in what we see. Our faith is in you, the Lord God Almighty. And we don't know what you're doing. Everything could change tomorrow. 
And so, Lord, we pray that until Jesus comes or until we die, may we be found faithful. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.